Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Monocule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. Today's guest is Audrey Greenberg, who is co-founder of the Center for Breakthrough Medicines, which is now part of SK Farm Techo. You guys are in for a real treat today. Audrey is one of the most connected people that I think I've ever come across in our space. She's a serial entrepreneur, having founded three startups which have exceeded valuations in excess of $1 billion. That was billion, not million. As the founder of CBM, Audrey successfully launched the company, attracted 400 employees from around the globe, raised $500 million in capital, closed a 15-year, $100 million joint venture with the University of Pennsylvania's Gene Therapy Programme, and sold the company to SK Farm Techo. Uh, before, before launching CBM, she founded Discovery Labs, which grew into the largest privately held life science real, real estate portfolio in the US. And she spent two decades as an executive in private equity, where she grew assets under management to over $100 billion. Awards have included being selected as the top trailblazer in biotech, the most influential Philadelphian, Titan 100 twice, healthcare innovation leader and women of influence. And she is also a renowned keynote speaker, specializes is specializing in cell and gene therapy, DEI initiatives and Silicon Valley, as well as building bio innovation hubs. An absolute corker of a guest for you guys to enjoy today. And if you do enjoy today's episode, uh, please share it, rate it, and give us a nice uh, rating on the app of choice. And make sure you subscribe. Enjoy. Hey, Audrey, welcome to Molecule to Market. Thank you so much. It's a lot of fun to be here. Can't wait to get into the dialogue. We are going to have some fun in the next hour. Um, and the first thing it's worth saying is, I can't believe we were not connected beforehand. When I connected with you on LinkedIn a few weeks ago, I was like, how on earth have we not met before? So it's an absolute pleasure to finally have some time with you and more more important importantly bring your story to our listeners today Audrey so let's start with the start like give us a bit of the backstory of how you ended up where you are today you've got quite an interesting background that ultimately led to you founding a business but you know our listeners might not have come across you before so give us a bit of the backstory yeah good question it's a it's a varied story it's definitely not um, you know, upward sloping in one direction without any deviations, right? It's, it's a, the trials and tribulations of life, but really pleased to be here. Uh, thanks for having me. So currently serving as co-founder and chief business officer at the Center for Breakthrough Medicines. We were recently acquired, merged with SK Firm Techo. Uh, but my background is not that of a typical biotech executive. Uh, I always loved numbers, started in investment banking and accounting. I worked in private equity for a number of years. And while it's fun to make a lot of money, I quickly realized that I wanted to do something that had sort of a triple bottom line to it, right? So doing something for society that's economically sustainable while also making some money. And it really, for me, ultimately came down to uh, medicine. And I come from a family of doctors that sort of got away from that. And as I was living in Philadelphia, approximate to the University of Pennsylvania, quickly realized all the technology coming out of CHOP and PEN and cell and gene therapy. I went to Wharton MBA years ago 
and really saw Philadelphia as the epicenter of the future of medicine. And as you ask yourself, you know, what is what do these technologies need? Clearly, they need scalable platforms and repeatable processes and clean rooms, but it's all about the talent. And so we we really started this company, the Center for Breakthrough Medicines, to address the extreme uh, really disconnect between supply and demand and uh, capabilities and talent and incapacity. So we started uh, CDMO really servicing not just the Philadelphia cell and gene therapy ecosystem, but really any advanced therapy company from around the world can get their product uh, developed and manufactured here at our site in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania. And I'm going to come back to talking about Pennsylvania and that you know that kind of founding story for the Center of Breakthrough Medicines. But pr- prior to all of that, from looking back kind of into your uh, kind of backstory, you obviously spent a considerable considerable amount of time in kind of in the finance world. Um, that seems to be your kind of background. So was there always a desire to go into entrepreneurship and start your own business? Was that always part of the plan or did you envisage you were going to go down kind of the more traditional, you know, investment bank type type route? No, I always wanted to do something entrepreneurial. I come from a line of female entrepreneurs, starting with my great grandmother. So I, I really always wanted to get a good education, you know, not necessarily in the academic setting, but certainly there. But in my young professional career, I always considered, you know, that first job or those first couple jobs as a continuance of my education. And I wanted a really strong platform in accounting and finance to make sound business decisions. And and really one of the key things to understand when you're starting a business is, you know, you need money to do that. And, and the way really optimize your capital structure is to manage the valuation inflection point so that you're not diluting yourself too badly. And understanding the economics around that and the market requirements uh, in terms of generating valuation are really, really important. So having that finance background, having the connections that I forged while at Morgan Stanley and Merrill Lynch and while working in New York and on Wall Street, it was it was really um, helpful when we were raising capital here at CBM. Yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna say, I imagine that uh, those early experiences, and you mentioned, I was just about to say, you know, Merrill Lynch and Morgan Stanley and and Deloitte, like it is the kind of <laughs> the who's who of that world that you had that kind of early experience probably give you a great kind of foundation. And then prior to starting the Center for Breakthrough Medicines, I noticed that the you, the the a business that you started prior to that was called Discovery Labs, and I wanted to see. Did Discovery Labs kind of form part of the Center for Breakthrough Medicines? Are they one and the same thing or were they two completely different entities? Yeah, that's a good question. I remember when we first hatched CBM out of Discovery Labs, that was confusing to a lot of people. So how I originally got into the space was really through real estate. So uh, I worked in real estate private equity for a number of years. We moved to Philadelphia for my husband's job. Um, I knew an individual that was buying this building. And the original plan for the building was really to gut all this big pharma lab infrastructure and create a financial services hub. And I quickly realized that that is not the best use of the space. There's a billion dollars from GSK invested in infrastructure. Why not redeploy that investment to the baby biotechs of Philadelphia? And so originally, we were just going to lease the space, right, as more of a very large incubator. 
And we were showing the space from one tenant to the next. And it was manufacturing, manufacturing, selling gene therapy one after the next. And it, at some point, right, a light bulb goes off that there is clearly demand for selling gene therapy manufacturing and those that build it, they will come, right? So, so we hatched CBM out of Discovery Labs, which uh, we had originally started and has grown into one of the largest life science, privately held life science um, ecosystems in the world. But the CBM became its own entity. Uh, we went from 20 people at the end of 2020 to 100 people at the end of 21 to 400 people at the end of 22. And now we're part of SK Farm Tech, which is nearly 2,000 people around the world, including locations in Korea and Ireland and France and on the West Coast. So we're really part of this global ecosystem now. And it's so fun to watch your baby grow up, right? So, so, so it's, it's, it's been a good experience for sure. And I'm going to come to your baby now, actually, which obviously what you mentioned is CBM. And so my, just so I'm checking my understanding in there. So you were part of this, you know, it, your real estate career led you into kind of seeing this opportunity, which led to the creation of Discovery Labs. And within Discovery Labs, CBM was an entity and that effectively span out to become it's kind of your your new baby, if you like. And so... Talk us through that journey then up to obviously the point of, um, you know, the, the, the merging the business, selling the business to, to SK. What was it like, I suppose, taking that step into entrepreneurship? You'd always fancy doing it. You mentioned, obviously, you came from a, a line of female entrepreneurs, but, you know, that kind of step from Discovery Park and then into CBM. What was that emotionally like? What was that like? You know, did it feel very exciting? Did it feel like overwhelming? Because... I think given the career that you've had up to that point, like it looks like you were in like, my guess would be like really well paid, like solid roles in, in very, very good companies. But you obviously took a very brave step kind of in at that point in your career. Yeah, that's a, it's funny I, to reflect on that and the emotions you go through and the decisions you make, right? Because you can um, live on your paycheck or you can take a risk, right? And and ultimately, I had done that once before, by the way, when I left, originally left investment banking. Uh, this was right after September 11th. I was living in Manhattan um, during the terrorist attack. And um, I started a business like right after that, right? I started a small real estate private equity company, and that was a risk. But, but then I went back to sort of the big company life, corporate life. And when we moved here and we spun out CBM, um, it is scary. First of all, I didn't know that much about biotech, right? Yeah, I came from a family of doctors, but my whole career was in financial services, essentially. And um, just really hired. I, you know what I think, actually, this is a good question, because what does it take to not only, obviously, there's an appetite for risk, but I think one of the most important personal characteristics of success in an entrepreneurial setting is a very strong intellectual curiosity and just a craving for knowledge and information. So that was very helpful to me in starting this company because it wasn't just Googling. It was talking to every expert I know, hiring all the right people. You know, you have to hire to your weaknesses too. The first person we hired, candidly, was Matt Farbaugh, who is our CFO. And he had worked in the industry forever, knew how to properly price a vector and build the space. And then 
you know, one hire after the next, we, we built, you know, hired our head of quality, got to be one of your first hires, right? To make sure that you're building GMP compatible space, hire, headed our hire of testing analytics to make sure that we're developing advanced analytics so that these therapies can be really set time. And then obviously our head of manufacturing. So it's important to hire really good people that share that entrepreneurial spirit. And I think when you're, I was so passionate about what we were doing. I had a child that was born with cholesteatoma. We had spent many, many surgeries at CHOP and just knowing what the children go through that are experiencing some of these horrible diseases and knowing that you're being able to bring space online to cure these previously uncurable diseases, that's very motivating. And I had so much passion and being able to recruit a team around me that really had that same passion for delivering patients therapies, creating a hub in Philadelphia that could change the trajectory of the city for generations and change generational wealth of a poverty stricken city. I mean, there's so many positive impacts to what we're doing. So just feeling really good about it, attracting a team that shared that passion, and then bringing space services and capacity online to a market that is starved for these capabilities. Well, firstly, thanks for being uh, so honest and sharing, I suppose, uh, an aspect of your personal life there that led to that. And it, it, it kind of links back to what you said at the start, Audrey, in terms of have doing something with purpose and, you know, having a, an entrepreneurial mission that was aligned with a purpose, which very much sounds like it was that case. And, and you, you know, in a very short space of time, built a great, have built a great business at, you know, the Center for Breakthrough Medicines. What, how is... What was that journey like in the in I suppose up to the point of obviously the sale to SK? Was it was it chaotic? Was it I'm sure it was very chaotic, you know, from experience. It tends to be, but you know, you, it's that classic, you know, uh, you know, making the aeroplane while you're trying to fly it. Is my observation that you know creating a CDMO in the Southern Gene Therapy space in the last five years must have been very very hectic. Yeah, and don't forget COVID, right? And, and oh, yeah, I forgot, that, I forgot yeah, about COVID. <laughs> right, and as I said earlier, there's it's never a linear path, right? I mean, you are you have to be very nimble. So originally, right, the space was going to come online in 2020. COVID hits. We have to. Com- not only did that disrupt our capital raise, so we did our entire capital raise on Zoom, but it also impacted our ability to procure equipment and consumables and hiring, everything became an issue. So unfortunately, it took longer, it cost more. um, But we righted the ship. And you know, we we continue to face challenges every day. It's this isn't something that's easy. We're doing something highly complex, in a complex market. um, And we are hiring people where there's only a few a handful of people in the world that have so the experience that we need. So we have this huge training institute. We built space just to do training. And we have GMP labs that we're doing training. So you have to think ahead. You have to understand what you need. You have to do an exit back an- analysis. Like, here's what we're going to need in 2025. What do we need to do today? How do we get there? Where are the gaps? How do we fill the gaps? And then also, by the way, how do we remain nimble? You know, how do we build a GMP suite that can easily be adapted from vector to cell or from cell to perhaps mRNA, you know, and so you have to think modularly and you have to spend a little bit more upfront so that you have that flexibility down the road. We, when we first met with SK, um, I was gosh, over two years ago and it was, 
I I knew, I think even after our first meeting, it was like, you know, when you go on a first date and you just have that feeling, you know, we, we had this meeting and it was all on Zoom and they showed, they presented to us first their culture and their investment hypothesis. And it just felt like an authentic and genuine pitch, for lack of a better word. They shared their logo, which I thought was a butterfly, but turned out to be the wings of happiness. And anytime an employee at SK logs into their computer, they have to click in order to get into their computer how happy they are, right? There's something really nice about that. And so they genuinely care about the people that work for them. They care about the environment and the globe that they, they have very strong ESG initiatives in terms of carbon footprint and everything else. And it just felt like a match made in heaven. And we're just so pleased now to be part of this SK ecosystem and brand. And we can't wait to announce our coming out, so to speak, of SK Farm Techo uh, cell and gene therapy. Very exciting. And what and talk us through, you obviously mentioned why SK was a good fit, but was there any point at which you didn't, you, know, you built this this baby of yours, you know, over a period of four or five years, you know, hired hundreds of staff, you know, real economic impact in in the region that you guys operate, not to mention the therapeutic and patient impact that you guys are going. What was, was there a specific reason why you decided to partner with SK or was there a part of you that, you know, maybe wanted to go down the private equity route and actually just continue that journey on yourself? Because I imagine given the success you had as an organization, you probably had numerous options on the table. Yeah, that's a really good question. So we had a lot of strategics as well as funds that were interested and ultimately came down to three things, right? The, the obviously valuation always comes to play, but more importantly, it's about time horizon, risk appetite, and finally cultural fit, right? And, 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 and finally actually a, a strategic fit. So we, we knew that SK had tremendous investment in cell and gene therapy companies. We knew that they were doing a strategic shift out of some of these um, so legacy like oil and gas portfolio investments into healthcare. We knew they had this long-term time horizon. They saw these private equity funds, or they want to exit in three to five years. And we knew that we needed the flexibility and the foresight to invest for the long run. And ultimately for us, it was about that valuation and the time horizon, the strategic fit in their cell and gene therapy companies, and then finally cultural fit and the, the wings of happiness they had us they had us at the happiness <laughs> they had you at the wings of happiness which i right. uh, which i love and i love um i love what you said there and i think it's a real entrepreneurial trait to follow your gut and your you know your intuition in terms of you said that that first meeting that you had you got a kind of warm fuzzy feeling from the guys at, at, at sk and i think that pro- that same sentiment probably was when you met potential employees and you met other potential investors and clients and other stakeholders in the journey of your business where that gut feel that you had was probably, it's a good thing that you followed that. Yeah, I, I do that a lot. And it's so interesting, I, that intuition, right? And it's in customer meetings, it's in vendor meetings, it's certainly in employment and and really any any aspect of your life, it's so important to sort of tap into your intuition. But you also have to go through the number. I mean, that's why I love my accounting and finance background, right? So it's sort of, you have to have a balance between how does it feel emotionally and then what does it look like on paper? And I think you can 
ultimately make a good decision based on those two factors. Uh, I think that's terrific advice, uh, that kind of emotional and rational piece. And you actually give me a good segue into one of the questions that I really wanted to ask. You know, you obviously had to do some capital raising when it came to obviously building um, the business. And obviously, given your background, that was an area where you've had expertise. So you know, for any of our listeners who are on that journey or are about to embark on that journey, any tips or advice for anyone that is fundraising for the first time and things that have worked for you pretty well uh, over the years? Yeah, I mean, you have to... Well, if if you have a big enough raise, first of all, hire an intermediary to help you because they will provide tremendous value more than their weight in fees, right? So I am, I mean, maybe I'm a little biased because I came from the intermediary background, but certainly hire uh, a capital raising expert to help you if, this, if the raise is big enough, right? But I would say certainly you need to have a really good pitch. And the pitch is about the the market environment, the demand for services, your ultimately your numbers and how you fit into the market, how you're different. And the biggest thing is who's the team, right? So if this is the first time raising capital, hire somebody that if you can or bring somebody on the team, uh, give them some equity to give you some gravitas in the market because track record is everything, especially in today's market when there's a flight to quality, people are risk averse. Uh, there's not a lot of capital out there because the IPO market shut down and the private equity guys need to recycle their capital. And so there's a lot of competing uh, competition out there for capital and uh, to differentiate yourself with a good team, with a good story. Um, and if you can, you know, hire hire somebody that, that can help you. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. One thing you we've touched on on that final point there was the, I suppose this the selling gene therapy space and the capital markets generally. And it's been a difficult, say, 12 to 18 months for that space. You know, it was, if I rewind back three years ago, it was the hottest space and every new facility and those CDMOs popping up left, right and center in this space. But, you know, if you read any of the market information or even just anecdotally at any of the events, it's been it's been a tougher 12 months for companies in the selling gene therapy space, particularly on the CDMO side. Is that something that you guys have felt as well? And just any thoughts you've got of what what has contributed to that? Is it is it just simply down to the financing model of the market, or is something is it something a bit more complicated? Well, I think it's a couple things. I, I, primarily, it is the market, but I would say that the FDA has had a bit to do with it too. And I think there look, we've seen six approvals this year for, for in gene two and cell. Uh, we're expecting a handful more before the end of the year, despite the fact there's only a month and a half or so left. Um, and next year, I think I heard somebody quoted like 20 approvals. I can't even believe it is amazing. We had a handful of approvals just a couple of years ago, and now you're seeing the FDA and the science really advancing. So it's unfortunate, right, that there's a disconnect right now between the scientific advancements and in, in the capital markets. But that's the way it is. And I think once capital starts flowing, you're going to see uh, an avalanche uh, of demand. So there's just so much advance that's happening in the science and in the universities that the capital is needed to continue that progression. 
lots of positive uh, vibes there, which I love, and that avalanche of demand that I think everyone listening is thinking, fingers crossed, that's going to happen in the next. I mean, it's impossible the time, right? I mean, you can't have everything, you know, it's just life, right? It's ebbs and flows (laughs) and, and, and you, unfortunately, sometimes you build something and then there's no, and then a couple of years later, there's demand and there's nobody that has supply. So it's, it's really hard to time. But if you look at the pipeline and you look at the scientific advancement, it just seems very predictable to me. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think if you look at the fundamentals of the market, you know, in terms of, you know, you said there, you know, FDA approvals are up more spend in R&D. Like, you know, there, there's just more going on and the kind of the trend lines are all going in the right direction. And you have to just accept there are going to be ebbs and flows over a specific period of time. But yeah, like, like you, I'm certainly very positive about the future. And you mentioned the word ecosystem a few times. I've, I've written it down because you've jotted it down. And I wanted to ask about I suppose Pennsylvania and Philadelphia in particular. And the reason I'm asking this is I'm sitting here talking to you today and I, you know, without doing the numbers, so many of the guests I've interviewed, 150 plus guests on Molecules and Market live in Pennsylvania. And I'm not sure if that's random or if actually there's something, you know, is there something really going on in that state? But Philly, and you mentioned obviously the potential, we've heard this a few times on the podcast that Philly and Pennsylvania in particular, like I suppose that state is really up and coming in this space. And you are part of that, right? That, you know, the the CBM is, is testament to the opportunity and the talent. So any thoughts on, I suppose, the ecosystem in that part of the world? Are you seeing that become a real... Uh, kind of hub for whether it be biotech or whether it be the supply chain and CDMOs, et cetera. Are you seeing a shift in focus in terms of you know life sciences in, in that part of the world? Yeah, I definitely. I mean, Philly historically was the city of eds and meds, right? And because of that and because of how cell gene therapies are created in these small academic labs, we've just, we're the number one funded NIH uh, region for cell gene therapy. So you see, if you're in the cell and gene therapy space, you're going to spend a lot of time in what I love to call Silicon Valley, right, in Philadelphia. And a lot of that is because some of the original founders of this technology, including Carl June, Jim Wilson, Stuart Weissman, um, it, are all here at Penn, right? And so they all these baby chops and baby pens are spinning off every day. Um, and we, we, we're starting as a state to really, with Josh Shapiro, our new governor, to understand why it's so important for state the state to get behind this. And, and Massachusetts has been ahead of us in this regard. But I think Pennsylvania is getting there. We've gone from, by the way, in just the last couple of years, we've gone from number 10 in the biotech cluster rankings to number five, to number four in some places. I imagine in the next couple of years, because of the amount of investment that's occurring in our space, the incredible talent that we have, 90,000 plus cell and gene therapy, um, uh, excuse me, 90,000 plus uh, life science employees, 10,000 of which have cell and gene therapy experience. We went from 40 cell and gene therapy companies to 80. You know, they, it's, The growth rate is so huge that I really do think you'll see us uh, becoming the number one hub for cell and gene therapy. And I think innovation in general, because another thing that Philadelphia and Pennsylvania has going for it is software. It it Mm -hmm. has a huge software and infrastructure background. And I think with AI, 
coming into play in terms of clinical trials and being able to predict uh, clinical success uh, and being able to figure out the manufacturing batch, you know, the golden batch, so to speak, with AI and all the environmental factors that go into that. I think data is here and we are the first fully digital CDMO. And I think that's going to make a big difference. So I think Philadelphia has that really great mix of the science and the technology. Great. For that part of the world, to anyone listening um, who who hasn't visited or have not got clients or contacts in that part of the world, to encourage you to do so because it is a very, very vibrant part of the North American market at the minute. And I'm going to take a bit of a kind of left turn here. We've talked about obviously your business journey and the successes that you've had. And one of the reasons I was really keen on getting you on the podcast was you are like a great, in my opinion, anyway, like a fantastic role model in terms of being a female entrepreneur in this space. And and you've won, you've been, you know, won many accolades as a as a consequence of that. So talk to us about how you now think about that role where I think, you know, not and I don't mean exclusively young females that, you know, like, no, like, no, like I appreciate like, it. Thank pe- you. People will look at you as a role model. Yeah. Talk us through some of the the lessons that you've had along the way, some of the learnings, and I suppose any words of wisdom for you know, you know, you know, if I'm a, I'm not obviously, but if I'm a 25 to 30 year old young female looking at your career, thinking how do I forge uh, a career path like that, trajectory like that, and, and as you said before, the ebbs and flows of life <laughs> are not always predictive; it's not linear. But what things have worked for you? Because I, you know, especially because you've come from a really predominantly male background, right? You come from like that investment banking world, which I suspect in 2001 in New York, <laughs> you were there weren't loads of females around the table at that time. You've probably done it the hard way. So I think any lessons and uh, tips you've got for anyone who might be looking up to you today would be great. Yeah, that's a good, a good point in terms of lessons learned the hard way. I certainly have uh, been in many, many conference rooms and settings where it was um, me being the only woman in the r- room. But I think, you know, if I think about my upbringing, I had, like I said earlier, just a, a series of female entrepreneurs. You know, my mother, a doctor, but owned her own practice and also had some other businesses. And just having that example, I think, was helpful. I never had in my head ever that there was a ceiling or a limit or it just, and, and I had an older brother also, by the way, who, who I think that was helpful and his friends were always in the house just being in that environment um, of having the good role model and being in a male dominated environment from a very young age and then always loving math and science and so even in my classes you know when I was an undergrad it was a lot of men in the classes right and so I and I I think that you know look as a woman in business you got to have a good sense of humor. You have to take everything in stride and you have to really be the example that you want to see in the world. So I do my best to provide pathways to success for other young females and minorities. I do everything I can in my spare time to give advice and wisdom and a helping hand and introductions. And it's just so important to help others and um, let them have the wisdom and advice that you sort of experienced growing up. But I think in terms of, you know, navigating and, and giving advice to the folks out there that may be, you know, thinking about career or how to work in a male dominated environment, I think just, you know, 
grab your seat at the table. <laughs> Leadership is taken, not given. And own it. You know, just own it. And and you really have to, for me, positive, I know it's going to sound hokey, but like positive visualization is a huge thing, right? And so having the confidence and the gravitas to, to own what you want to be is a huge thing. So don't be shy. Don't be meek. Obviously, you want to have decorum and respect and everything like everybody else, regardless of gender. Uh, but 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 speak your mind. You ha- know that you have value and you have something to add and, and, and do it. I love that. And I'm sure there are many people listening to the podcast today that you're skipping back and rewinding and listening to those words of wisdom. So, so much good advice there. And you mentioned kind of networking. And I, when I came across you, originally i was astounded by the network that you seem to have built and also your own personal profile and brand and i don't mean that in a in a negative way actually far from it you know you've been awarded huge so many accolades you know top trailblazer in in biotech and uh, one of the most influential people in in philadelphia uh, health innovation leader awards women of influence so many kind of personal accolades that have helped raise your profile. So if I think, if I look at like those two things, like you and your profile and your your ability to network, those are two things I hugely resonate with because they've worked really, really well for me in my career. Um, and so my question is like, how do you how do you go about thinking about those things? Are they very much an intentional strategy in terms of you are always going to be active in building your network and yours? not going to be ashamed to celebrate and promote your own achievements because actually you've absolutely deserved them or do they just kind of happen by accident i suspect it's the former but i would love you to talk about how you think about those things yeah i mean i love people i do i love learning about people getting to know people helping people i think those things lend itself very well to building a network right it's i'm not intentionally building a network but it is sort of um, in effect of what I'm doing because I'm out there in the world getting to know people, trying to understand what their needs are, connecting. I'm a big connector right and here. I enjoy it, right? It's not, I was a works of four letter work. This isn't work. This is fun to me. This is what I love doing. And I think I've come to a place in my life and my career where I do what I enjoy doing. Yeah, there's aspects of my job that can be administrative heavy or you know, not necessarily people oriented, which I love doing, but it's okay because it's all for the purpose of building something that's helping people. Uh, but yeah, the networking thing and my so-called brand that I have for me, it's about sharing information and convincing people that of something that I'm passionate about. So if it's the advancement of women or women on boards or uh, minorities in clinical trials, building um, demographic ba- databases and and things of that nature, you know, I will be loud and proud about it. And so I think those things resonate with certain people or maybe they don't, but it, it, I guess it, it's part of my brand. Um, maybe not intentionally, but it, it's who I am and I'm very vocal about it. Yeah, good for you. And I think there's, there's a lot people can learn from that. And you said you said something I wanted to kind of double click on, which was um, uh, kind of being on boards. And when I was looking at your profile and your biography, again, I was astounded by the amount 
of boards that you positions that you have or that you've taken in the past it really is quite phenomenal and i you know I, there's a huge list of them and i'm not going to go through all, every single one of them and if there are any in particular that you want to talk about we can we can certainly do so what 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 value has that delivered to you and in terms of helping your own growth and your own experience so if i'm looking at this from you know again a, a younger person in the industry thinking well oh, I haven't got time to go on a board and do anything else. But if I look at someone like you who've who's done it for many years and consistently and, you know, offline we talk, you're a mother with three kids and you've run a business and you have a very, very busy life, yet you still make time for these positions. So I'd love you to talk about kind of what that means to you and, and the benefit that it's had to your career. Yeah, I think I at a very sort of young age, and maybe this was because of my time at Deloitte, where they would give you time to go serve on nonprofit boards, right? So I went through this United Way board training program back in the 90s or something. And um, I, I got placed on a couple nonprofit boards when I lived in New York City. And I think what I got from that was how much it benefits you while at the same time benefiting, obviously, the nonprofit institutions. So one of the things, young professionals, it's always there's always this conversation around the forest and the trees, right? If you're an accountant or you work in finance, you're obviously very much in the spreadsheet, very much in the details, doing the analytics, but you may not get the big picture. I was always so astounded as a young analyst um, when I would show my beautiful, what I thought was this amazing PowerPoint presentation to my managing director, and he would look at it and be say, you know, you got this valuation completely. How could you not understand? And it was so interesting to me. It, interesting to me in three seconds how they could just digest the information and think about it from a big picture perspective. And I do think that that's what board service gives you. you it gives you the perspective wow. of the forest, right? You're able to see the risk environment, the market environment, the disruptors in the space, the competition. You have to think about all that from a very high level to steer a company or a nonprofit in the right direction to have a going concern or to, to be to being very successful. And and so board service gives you that perspective. It, and it's also um, nice for me personally. Look, I've done so many things, right? I, I worked in Vest Vegas. I worked in accounting. I worked in private equity. I started a couple companies and I was successful exits. Having that experience and being able to bring that to the table to another company that with people that either don't understand or need help or whatever it is, being able to bring that track record to somebody else and helping them navigate their environment is is really rewarding. I'm smiling here, not in a way, because that's been exactly my experience as well as when you support people that are in positions where you used to be or you have been or are, I think the objectivity that you often take in a board position allows you to guide without being in the day-to-day -day and actually just give perspective, which I think is so, so powerful. So I just, yeah, absolutely agree with a lot of, well, pretty much everything that you just sent there, which I think is, again, great kind of advice for, for people listening. Just this I, week, actually, I was on with the chairman of the board of a public company that I serve on that I've been on for some time. And I was just asking him about, you know, one-on-one -on -one I like the one-on-ones too outside of the board meetings and just, you know, what do you think of this market environment? What's happening? How's the company navigating? And, you know, at the end of the conversation, he said to me, you keep asking these good, you ask the best questions. You keep asking <laughs> these good questions. And so it's so interesting how you can really steer 
the future of a company just by asking a question that you're genuinely curious about. So yeah, yeah I'm, I love serving on the boards. And we're nearly out of time, but I've got a couple of other things that I wanted to discuss as well. So let's talk about SK and you know SK Farmteco and your obviously being part of that. What is what does the next couple of years look like for you guys, and what does the future hold, and what is the business looking to become? Yeah, so SK Farm Taco is looking to be the number one CDMO of choice uh, across all modalities. So right now we're heavily in small molecule analytics and cell and gene therapy. As we've discussed, we have this beautiful global footprint. But for us, it's about, and how we differentiate ourselves is just really the way that we work with customers. So continuing to be that really robust, hands-on CDMO that isn't giving you the Heisman when you want to come in the suite or in the labs or you want to sit in our beautiful person and plant space. We actually call it partner and plant. And it's about leveraging that. And what's so interesting is it's sort of uh, not to be silly, but it's about my DNA, right? That's who I am as a person. And so bringing that to the table for SK Farm Techo to be a relationship oriented CDMO that's helping companies quickly scale, get to market, or helping being a redundant supply for a global provider mm-hmm. is, is really where we're looking to go. Um, so currently, we're a wholly owned subsidiary of SK, which is the second largest holding company in South Korea uh, next to Samsung. And we are probably, you know, depending on the market, we'll, we'll go public in our own accord under the SK firm Peco umbrella uh, with these five other CDMOs that are in this umbrella. And uh, that will be based on our revenue growth and the market and everything else. But uh, eventually, that's the plan. And and that's not to exit per se, but it's to continue our life, continue our growth, mm-hmm. um, and and make sure that we're able to meet the patient demand that's out there. Because ultimately, for all of us here um, at SK Farm Checo and CBM, it's all about the patient. Very exciting future ahead. And final question is: We you touched on this a little bit, but I love your thoughts. You know where sat here at the the back end of uh, 2023, depending on when this podcast episode goes out, maybe before the turn of the arrow at the start of 2024. What's your take on the market as we as we look at 2024? What are you expecting to see? Are you expecting it to recover slightly and you know more funding coming in? Uh, or, or are you expecting or planning for a, another kind of tricky six months? No, I, I do think things are starting to open up. Look, in the four, fourth quarter, things are really tight right now. I think you'll start to see in the first quarter of next year, things loosening up, capital flowing back into the market, um, interest rate stabilizing, and the economy getting much, much better. It's starting with the re, you know a little bit of um, opening up in the first quarter, and then certainly um, with a real positive trajectory into the third and fourth quarters at the end of the year. And what a great positive note to end today's conversation. And for our listeners, I certainly encourage you to uh, connect with Audrey on LinkedIn and follow her. You put some great stuff on there. I'm, a, I'm an admirer of the good stuff that you're working on. And uh, you, you obviously you're very approachable and receptive to networking as well, which is which is fantastic. So thanks so much for being a guest on the show. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. So how about that? What an absolute whirlwind of a person. So, so impressive. That was Audrey Greenberg, who is the co-founder of the Center for Breakthrough Medicines, which, as you've just heard, is now part of SK Farm Techo. 
yeah, so much to take from today's episode. It was great to hear kind of about her backstory and to kind of what she learned from that kind of investment banking background. And she gave some fantastic tips in terms of fundraising uh, as part of that as well. And it was interesting to hear her journey from kind of real estate in financial services and how that led into the cell and gene therapy space. Um, so interesting how she kind of found her way into our industry through that particular route. Um, you know, as as you know, I, I'm a big fan of founder stories and it was uh, super interesting to hear how the Center for Breakthrough Medicines and Discovery Labs came about and the scaling up of that business and why SK Farm Techo was the right fit for her business, you know, especially when she had so many options on the table, which I'm sure it was a, a difficult decision, but one that seems to be a, a fantastic fit. Great to get an insight on Pennsylvania, in particular Philadelphia's uh, Silicon Valley, uh, you know, why that's becoming one of the hottest life science clusters in the US. It's something that we've heard a couple of times and more and more guests that we seem to interview seem to be coming from that part of the world as well as California and Massachusetts and you know in the UK, Golden Triangle and all the obvious places. So it's it's great to see that becoming such a kind of hot place for the sector. So much in there for uh, young males and females to take away from learning about their profile, networking, fundraising. Um, she wasn't short of advice for people to take some stuff and I'm, you'll be no doubt rewinding back and skipping and having a listen to some of those again. Uh, and last but not least, I think it was just good to get a dose of positive, positivity, I can't say it, uh, you know, a, a positive outlook, if you like, um, for the future of the sector as we look into 2024 and beyond. You know, she seems to feel that the capital will start flowing again and talks about the kind of the avalanche of demand that she expects to see and the kind of sentiment I got from that was that you know science the science is there and it just needs that combination with capital so yeah so much good stuff from today's episode I really really hope you enjoyed it thanks as always to my team for pulling together today's episode and bringing it to your ears um, and if you like today's episode please like it and share it with a colleague thanks again hi again Thanks for tuning in to today's show. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. For more shows, have a look on Spotify, Apple, or Amazon, wherever you like to listen. And do make sure that you subscribe so the next episode comes direct to your device automatically. And please get in touch via our website, Molecule to Market Pod or via LinkedIn or Twitter. We love to hear from you. So if you have a guest that you want to suggest or someone in your organization that you think would make a great guest on Molecules Market, then please let us know. We'll see you very soon. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, an international content, digital, and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile, and generate leads in life sciences.